0: internet friends, and welcome back to Love, Hate, Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Boel.
1: And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your day, anger your souls, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And
0: Andy, you had something you wanted to start off with? Yeah! That sounded interesting to me. (laughs) I'm glad it sounded interesting. Um... Yeah, I wanted to just kind of talk about a a concept with you. I don't think this is necessarily something to love or to hate, but it's something I'm currently experiencing. Um, And this phenomenon of like having a falling down a rabbit hole of a a particular hobby, you know, be it, be it something um, that you've always thought was interesting or a hobby that you had for years and years and years and then fell out of for an equally long amount of time and now all of a sudden you're interested in it again and just a wave of like focus nostalgia hits you in the face and and to not speak in vague terms this is what I'm currently going through because I am currently having a mental renaissance of uh Warhammer battle figures which is a very 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 nerdy thing and if you don't know what I'm talking about just by me saying the name of it basically painting and building and fighting with little fantasy or uh, science fiction armies and so go ahead uh,
1: so I I do feel the need to emphasize this Um, because I remember Warhammer I remember Warhammer from middle school I had I had some friends who were into Warhammer to give this to for, for perspective, for those of you who have never heard of Warhammer, uh, if you've heard of World of Warcraft, I understand the two are somewhat linked. But Warhammer, like, these little figurines, these are not, like, little plastic baubles. Like, we're not talking about, like, I don't know, fucking Beyblades or some or Pogs. I knew kids who would come to school with these Warhammer figurines and straight up be like, yes, this one is $150. This one is $90. This one that I want is $200. And like, I could never wrap my head around why they were so freaking expensive. But like, I I emphasize that point just to be like, Andy, this is a hobby that people dedicate time and money and resources and effort into,
0: and you're casually strolling back into it. I'm it's more like I'm staring across the street from it being like, Oh, I remember the times we had. And for context, my white privilege is showing uh, back in middle school. My dad somehow became aware of, of these things and was interested in the concept. And then in very short or order, uh, my dad, myself and my brother all had our own different, like completely separate armies that we were painting and building. And none of us ever actually did the fighting part of it. It was so much just more about like collecting and the, like the hobby part of this thing. Cause just to really let people understand how this works is you it's models it's model building only the models are these super intricate little knights and demons and elves and griffins and shit. And and that's just the fantasy one. Um, and you get these little things and they're unpainted and they're disassembled. And so you spend an hour cutting them all open and gluing them together. And then you spend like a day painting one, if you want to make it really look really good. And so this was just, a thing that my dad poured hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars into. And it would be like, okay, these are some easy Christmas gifts for the boys because they're going to obviously like them. And just, I'm, I'm looking across the street and remembering the hours I spent at a table hunched over painting my little uh my my dark elves and my my space marines and being like oh it would be fun to just buy a crap ton of these and i can get some paint and i can i can find a space in my apartment uh, that's a fucking lie i can absolutely not find a space in my apartment to do this if i wanted to I've seen your apartment. Yes. <laughs> and so I'm sitting here being like, oh, I want, to, I want to cross the street and I want to skip the fence and I want to jump back into the community pool that is this hobby. And I, I'm holding myself back enough to just obsessively watch YouTube videos and TikToks and research it. There's a whole new game. Like I stopped this shit in like, two thousand and seven eight and i've never looked back and in the meantime like there is a whole new game with whole new armies and i'm sitting here watching video reviews of all of the armies being like well the tree people look really cool and i bet i'd really like to paint them but everyone says they really suck in combat but am I ever going to do combat? Am I am I ever going to play a game of this? I don't know. All of this to say, like, sometimes it's comic books. Sometimes it's fantasy hockey, which, uh, by the way, um, I, I said it on Twitter, but congrats to the Tampa Bay Lightning winning their second straight Stanley Cup. Um, I don't think it's fair to say I jinxed them anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh. sometimes it's hockey sometimes it's comic books sometimes it's obsessively researching a particular filmmaker and sometimes it's these it's basically the nerdiest possible version of arts and crafts that i'm just sitting here like being honest with myself i could fall into an obsession if i had the time and money and i suppose it's a good thing i have neither so, I do have thoughts about this. And, and I, you know what?
1: In, and I'll be upfront. I have fallen down my own versions of these rabbit holes. Because, uh, and this is not a surprise to anyone who has um, been following the podcast for a while. For me, that, like, the biggest version of that tends to be musical instruments. Sure. And specifically, guitars and basses. So, um,. Any one of you who play guitar will already understand this. Those I, I'm speaking right now to the people who don't play guitar. Um, especially when it comes to electric guitar, not all guitars sound the same. So depending on what kind of electronics are in there, what kinds of pickups are in there, um, the build of the guitar, there are... Um, certain qualities that come out of certain instruments versus others. And there are arguments around guitar players constantly as to, okay, if you want to cover the like full gamut of what, say, any different kind of musicians, like you are not just covering one style of music, but you want to be able to cover a whole bunch of them, what of this equipment do you need? And you can spend hours in that rabbit hole with people arguing about how much actual equipment do you need if you want to cover that whole gamut. What about for things you don't care to cover? Like, I I like metal, don't get me wrong, but I hate seven-string guitars that a lot of metal bands play. So I kind of sit here and go, all right, how can I get the sound of the bands that I actually like without needing to learn how to play a seven-string guitar which is an objectively awful instrument that no one should ever play and you should feel bad about <laughs> um like it's but but like do i get a guitar like how many guitars with single coils or humbuckers do i need do they need PAF styles do i need a gretsch with filtertron pickups do i need something with P90s and it's just like at the end of the day like I have fallen down the rabbit hole where I have sat there with, like, the Notes app up on my computer going like, okay, so if I get this kind of guitar with P90s, I can cover these kinds of sounds here. But if I get this kind of guitar that is a semi-hollow, then I can cover my kind of jazz, bluesy stuff. But I should also get another one with the same kind of pickups that's a solid body, because that can double for both, like, that bluesy, grungy stuff, but also metal and classic rock type of stuff. And, And at the end of the day, everybody... If you know how to set the EQ settings, like if you buy an like $50 EQ pedal, you can do all of this with any guitar. Like I have seen people do this on YouTube. You can do all you with one guitar, one amplifier and one EQ pedal. And then like a handful of effects, most of which you can download for free on the internet. You can do all of this. You don't need any of this equipment. But you can fall down that wonderful rabbit hole. And, and and don't get me started when I got into the idea of building guitars. I built one kit guitar. and Now I'm sitting here just like, okay, but now I can build this kind of guitar. And I can build this kind of guitar. Oh, and what if I go to a pawn shop, buy a cheap version of this guitar, and then like gut it. So that the bu- I can refashion the bones of it and put new electronics in and repolish the frets and maybe change the neck and convert it to a baritone and do this, do this and do that. And at the end of the day, I probably don't need to buy another guitar and I can do 95% of everything I want to do with the guitars that I have.
0: But it's fun. It's so much fun. and And just like the personal cost analysis is so much more about the, the, the journey than the destination, you know? And, and yeah, you it, it's overwhelmingly clear. You know, exactly what I'm talking about, but just like hearing the, the sort of obsessive joy in your voice at the idea of getting a guitar and replacing all new electronics, you know, matches the feeling I get when I sit here and go, I could, I could buy this army of tree people and oh, oh, I could give them like this birch color scheme and I could make the leaves red. And they're these blood red tree monster things. And they sound awesome. And I suppose at the end of the day, it's not a bad thing to be, to, to to experience this as long as one makes sure that they don't, actually fall down the rabbit hole, or if they do fall down the rabbit hole, there's someone who can check on them and, and make sure they're drinking water and not staying up till one in the morning, every night researching builds.
1: You know, it's, I think it's important to have hobbies. I actually do. Um, I tend to tell people like, think about, this is what I like to say. Think about the dads in your life. Not just like your dad, my dad, but like all of your friends' dads, all the dads you know. How many of them have an appreciable hobby? The reason I say this is because you know why it's so hard to shop for your dad for Father's Day? Because he doesn't have a fucking hobby. (laughs) Because at best, maybe he parks himself in front of the TV when he's not at work or like fixing shit around the house. And that's the thing. That's why we all go like, oh, I guess I'll get like a Lowe's gift card because dad likes tools, right? It's not that dad likes tools. It's that dad doesn't like anything except for World War II books and feeling accomplished at something. So yeah, it's, it's, it's important for people to have hobbies because if nothing else, it's so that people know what the hell to buy someone come like the holidays. And also like, I don't rail at TV very often on this show. I feel like TV was kind of an additional parent for me in a lot of ways. Um, No offense, Mom, but I had a TV in my room. I watched a lot of TV. You know this. Um, But, like, just something to fill the... time, And it doesn't need to be something you spend a lot of money on. Hell, like, you and I both know, like, painters and sketch artists who some of whom spend a lot of money on supplies and some of whom are just like you know what if i get this kind of paper and this kind of um what's the stuff pens, um ink pens i wasn't gonna say ink pens i was gonna say um the like uh not ash but um, charcoal charcoal this kind of charcoal i'm good and like they're fine with that and they can spend hours just working on their art with fairly cheap materials and they are good with that. I know guitar players who have a couple of guitars. They have this one for this sound, this one for this sound, a backup for the two of those, and that's it. And they are happy with that, and they put all their time into actually practicing and playing the goddamn things. Um, and, and and yeah, there, there, there you go on that front, but... At the end of the day, it's just important to have a hobby. If it doesn't break your particular bank, fucking go for it. And you know what? If you have a lot of money and you want to spend that lot of money on a huge collection of Warhammer stuff or a bunch of really expensive guitars, go for it. Otherwise, I don't know. Like, enjoy the chase. Like, it also sounds like you're having fun watching your YouTube videos and like pining like that's a form of fun as well
0: yeah yeah, absolutely
1: so you know what andy pursue your hobby just don't spend the rent on it how's that
0: that absolutely works thank you for talking that through with me and thank you dear listeners for spending a little bit of an extended time uh, on that journey with us but i I think that's one of my, my favorite douchebag buffers we've ever done, so I'll take it. Welcome to Love-Hate Relationship Proper, and on this show, when we're not just talking about uh, things we can obsess over, we talk about things we love, which are sometimes things we obsess over, things we hate, which, let's be fair, are more often things we obsess over in a negative way, and your internet question, your relationship questions, which we uh we don't necessarily obsess over but we do make sure to give you our best unqualified advice
1: i've lost sleep over a few so yeah mm-hmm.
0: fair <sighs>
1: so uh with that i have the love for this episode shall i get started andy
0: yeah let's go for it man
1: all right so um for any of you who are very confused at the title um i'm gonna, i'm gonna clear that up very shortly but um my topic for this episode is uh, a man by the name of Hanif Abdurraqib. And if you have never heard of Hanif Abdurraqib, not a problem. I will explain who he is. But I'm going to start off by saying that he is a poet. Now, I have talked about a poet on this show before.
0: Ocean Vuong. And at that
1: Ocean Viong, yep. And at that point, I decided to read a work of his to kind of introduce him. Andy, will you indulge me by doing, letting me do the same here for Hanif Abdurraqib? Always. Okay, so this is actually two short poems from the same series. Um, But some of you may recognize them from the titles. So, two poems, and I will link to these uh, in the show notes. They are both um, published by the account magazine. The Four Seasons, December 1963, Oh What a Night. My father comes from a place where at least the churches weren't blown from their foundations, while little girls prayed to a god busy cleaning the floors of their rooms, in a heaven not on fire. I say I have arrived, and the black people in the room hear. No one was eager enough to see my father dead. The story as I have heard it told, says that winter was a blessing for those who needed a place to hide a body in the north. In the south, before the wind, the world began to swallow itself, it never snowed. The bridges would sag with the weight of death. It is romantic, with the ocean lapping at your brother's blood will drive you to on the perfect night. There is the joke written by men about how virgins will be the only ones spared in the horror film. The horror film, as I understand it, has never had any intention of sparing me. Undertaker, I am beneath you again tonight. Forgive the clumsiness with which I drown in your endless feathers. Watch as I press my lips to your neck and vanish from all of my baby pictures. Second piece is called Carly Ray Jepsen, Emotion. There is more than one way to cover a temple in platinum. Maybe we both long for an era when there were less things to record death. In the interview, they asked if you believe in love at first sight. You said, I think I have to. You didn't say we are all one hard storm away from dissolving, vanishing into the frenzied dusk. But I get it. I know what it is to walk into the mouth of an unfamiliar morning and feel everything. I touch hands with a stranger who gives me my change at the market and I already know their history. I suppose this is survival. I will love those who no one else thinks to remember. This is all that is promised. There will be a decade you are born and a decade that you will not make it out of alive. All of the rooftops where the parties were in the year of my becoming are now dust. No one dances so close to the sky anymore. I say I too am a romantic and I mean I never expected to survive this long. I have infinite skin, I keep dry when the rain comes. There will always be another era of bright suits that don't quite fit but must. There will always be a year where the cameras are hungry for whatever sins we can strangle out of the night. There will always be another spoon for boys to lick the sugar from. Fuck. So, Andy, what are your thoughts hearing those two poems that are both named after, or both, um, both titled with songs, fairly well-known songs, at least well-known to me?
0: <laughs> I was about to say. I don't know if it's my own... Um my own ignorance, but I was trying to feel for the Carly Rae Jepsen um, references. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's fair. I love Carly Ray Jepsen. I also love the four seasons. I think, Oh, What a Night is a great song. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah.
0: Um, I find him to be incredibly evocative and able to help me visualize concepts that are not real, tangible things. Uh, You know, the first one, especially the sequence of being death's lover is what I equated it to, and just talking Mm -hmm. that through. Um, You know, I dare say I... And just at a glance, I think this—I I think Hanif might be a little bit more my cup of tea than Ocean Vyong. Uh,
1: more than I think you realize. Um, but I appreciate that. Uh, these two poems are from a series that he did, um, where he he basically came up with a playlist of songs that he took way too long to realize were about fucking.
0: Ah, okay. Um,
1: and then, um, after making that playlist, he just wrote kind of using those songs as prompts. And they're not necessarily about the songs. Um, I think the Carly Rae Jepsen song uh, definitely speaks with the song and songwriter and performer more than the Four Seasons one. But it's a cool-ass series, and these are two poems from it that were published in the account. Sure. And I like them because I think they're a great introduction to what I really want to focus on with Hanif Abdurraqib.
0: All right, by all
1: means. All right, cool. So, born and raised in Columbus, Ohio, Hanif Abdurraqib is a poet, essayist, journalist, and music and cultural critic. Um following his graduation from Capital University where he played soccer and studied marketing, he settled in New Haven, Connecticut for much of the late aughts and early two th- and early 2010s while he quietly published poetry and criticism uh until moving back to Columbus in 2017. Um
0: and real real quick just to deviate immediately, I have no idea if this uh if this comes up in his work or or, or anything, but you hear Hanif of Durakib and this is a bit of casual racism, but one does not figure he was born and raised in Columbus, Ohio. Nope. (laughs) Just a black dude from Columbus. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh,
1: and it, and the funny thing is, like, I'm, I'm going to get into some of, like, his... Uh, when you get into his background, like, he was just a lower middle class suburban kid. Um, he I, I'll, I'll talk about this some, but he was, you know, he was in the punk scene. He was in the hip hop scene. He was... He, he, if you see a photo of him, he is a, like... Every photo of him is him in either, like, hoodies and, like low hung pants or vintage concert tees, and like nothing is what you expect with Hanif Abdurraqib like at all.
0: I love that. I, I love that. And I think between that and Ocean Viong and, you know, to pull another example, there's a, a, a guy who's a filmmaker. His name is Jay Chandasakar and he was born in Chicago. I think people just need to, especially as we go on in, in life uh, just get you and realize that like names don't belie ethnicity background. or background or anything like that um, in a way that maybe in a, a, a very racist bent they might have you know 40 years ago. but but uh, thank you for letting me go on that complete digression. Please continue.
1: You good, absolutely. Um, so in 2016, he published his first book of poems titled The Crown Ain't Worth Much, which is a meditation on growing up black in Columbus and the exposure that he had to death, both as a person of color, again, lower middle class, kind of suburban person, but also as a devoted member of the punk and hip hop scenes throughout the like late 1990s and early 2000s. Um, he talks a lot about, suburban kid suicides mm, um, okay. and just how many of his friends he buried because of like opioid addiction, his white suburban friends um, in a lot of cases. His second book, they can't kill us until they kill us uh, was a collection of his previously published music and cultural essays. And I have a copy of it literally sitting right next to me. Um, but it is, it, it ranges from reviews of concerts by Carly Ray Jepsen and the weekend to meditations on the murder of Michael Brown, to like the most haunting essay I've ever read about watching Fallout Boy's career shift from the Chicago clubs that he saw them, them play in as a teenager. Like he was on the ground floor for the early days of Fallout Boy and was a fan of the bands that they were in before they even started that group, all the way to like now while simultaneously again weaving in stories of his friends who didn't who he went to these fallout boy shows with who ultimately did not survive to see what they would become and him like meditating what would what would he have thought of patrick stump's solo work when he thought infinity on high was when they had they had sold out like literally thoughts like this um he then published Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest, which is an, basically an extended love letter slash kind of memoir um, slash kind of profile to the hip-hop group A Tribe Called Quest. Another poetry collection titled A Fortune for Your Disaster, which again, if you're a Fallout Boy fan... You know that line. Um, And then his latest is a history of black popular culture titled A Little Devil in America, Notes in Praise of Black Performance. So these are the various books that he has published. I have read both poetry collections um, and They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. I have The Crown Ain't Worth Much, but I haven't read it yet. Um, And Little Devil in America just came out. Uh, this year but I intend to read it because it's his first kind of history book
0: yeah I'm not gonna lie I want to read all this shit this sounds awesome
1: yeah no like I I love this dude because like at the end of the day I I I, I said when we talked about Neil Gaiman that I basically wanted his career but really I think I want <laughs> Abdurra a
0: lot more like uh, going to punk shows
1: well, uh, he's okay. He's an incredible poet. I'd argue he's the best music critic since Rob Sheffield, um, maybe better. And his cultural criticism is as original and insightful as literally like any, like, name anyone else in the game: Cornel West, Tana nehisi Coast, Eve Ewing, any of them. Like, he is as good as all of them or better. And I just. <laughs> He is living my dream, Andy. He's like an incredible poet, but he is also a masterful, marvelous music critic. Who, again, he is a black dude, and for the, how black the roots of punk music are, and if you don't understand the Af- uh, the a- uh, African American roots of punk music. Um, Please, please, please do some more research because holy shit. Um, but, you know, he, again, he writes about – he he has a whole interview th- that he did um, that you can actually get a link to on his website. I'll link to his website. Uh, but it's literally an interview of him talking about the My Chemical Romance reunion that's probably never going to happen. Like, he fucking – or or no sorry that was um he mentions that it was a um NPR interview about um the 10th anniversary of the Black Parade
0: ah okay
1: like this dude who wrote an entire book about a tribe called Quest which again you kind of expect from an African American like music critic he also did an entire NPR interview about fucking My Chemical Romance he will spin circles around you on when it comes to any really anything like the dude has more Celine Dion t-shirts than I've ever seen in my life he will talk about Carly Rae J he he has a whole essay in um they can't kill us until they kill us about fucking Stevie Nicks and rumors and the very idea of writing music around heartbreak and art around heartbreak Mm. and like Every essay I read of his is like, I wish I thought of this. Like I, (laughs) I love his work so incredibly much and it's so varied and it's so brilliant. And he can talk about metal and punk and rap and pop music and synth and industrial and all of these different types of music. But then he's also just like a dope poet who'll absolutely take a random fallout boy lyric and title his fucking book that.
0: I'm not gonna lie. This guy, I I'm very happy you brought him up because I even in talking with you, even in ten years of friendship, I don't think I've ever uh, heard you talk about this guy, and he he just sounds like absolutely my shit.
1: I think I remember talking to you about how uh, like you were sharing something about the weekend with me, and I had literally just read his review of uh, mm-hmm. a weekend concert. Sure and he has this uh, and he has this idea of the weekend like it's not a generous take it's not an ungenerous take but he basically talks about the weekend as basically having like all the same skill as like the classic R&B singers of the 70s but unlike all of them he is far more about just fucking for the sake of fucking and not even pretending it's about love
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. which sure. he
1: presents not as a concept of like it, it's a little tongue-in-cheek but it's really this idea of just what is an r b singer for whom love is not in the equation which just as a thought experiment is fascinating and yeah. here he's literally re- taking the like Clearly, some mag like he's for he-, he knew he was gonna be selling a like review of a concert when the weekend came to Columbus, and he's like, okay, I can review the weekend at a concert, but how do I make this like the dopest shit you've ever heard of? Oh, let's talk about the idea of an R and B singer for whom love means nothing. Okay, all right, wow. I don't even know where you begin to come up with a concept like that.
0: You're uh you're a fan from the old days and you're a, a dedicated student of like you know, you, you mentioned you know the uh the idiosyncrasy of the idea of, of examining an R and B s an R and B singer talking about sex without love. Like just even the concept I'm sitting here going like, uh-huh. Yeah, I guess that really is kind of a core tenet of a lot of R and B, isn't it? Yeah, so there are
1: especially like classic R and B.
0: There, there are there are tiers and there are stages of knowledge, and it's it's very clear that, um, you know, Hanif is an a an A plus an S tier um, follower of of music and like the things that make music music and the things that make certain kinds of music, certain kinds of music, and then galaxy brain, uh, to follow this example, what happens when you deviate in that, uh, in that realm. It's awesome. That's, that's some very deep nerd stuff, I think, but also very cool nerd stuff. Yeah. And you
1: know, I, I, I will absolutely speak Hanif Abdurraqib's name in the same spaces as much more well-known cultural critics, um, but he's not well known. Like he, he, I, I say that I think he's the best. Do you know who Rob Sheffield is, Andy? I've certainly heard
0: the name. Did he? Did he create Rolling Stone?
1: Uh, He did not create Rolling Stone, but he um, is one of the, like, premier, like, editors and writers for Rolling Stone. I think he might have more Rolling Stone cover stories than anybody else. I love Rob Sheffield. If any of you are interested in, like, studying music journalists, you could do a lot worse than just going on RollingStone.com, typing in Rob Sheffield's um, masthead, and reading anything that he writes— um I think he's brilliant. He's also a suburban white kid. Um kid, he's like almost 50 at this point. But um but I think Rob Sheffield is a, is one of the greatest music writers about music of the last probably 100 years. Um and I would put Hanif Abdurkeep right up next to him. He might even be better. He just hasn't been doing it for the de- couple of decades that Rob Sheffield has at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will read literally any Hanif Abdurraqib music article, even about artists I don't even know, um, just because he is so damn brilliant and always has these really fantastic takes. Like I talk about how he did a concert review of a Carly Ray Jepsen concert. Um and it was really just about like it was almost in praise of like cult music like having a cult following because it was just like it was short and it's this sweet meditation on just how carly ray Jepsen seems so excited and happy to be there with this audience and her audience is so dedicated and in love with her and like frustratingly the mainstream does not seem to see what they see even he doesn't really see it he's like i like it it's like good 80s pop but I don't love it like these people love it. And that's kind of how I feel about Hanif Abdurraqib's career. Like, I love him, and he doesn't get that same amount of attention. I think a lot of that's because, like, he doesn't look for it. He, um, I mentioned that he moved back to Columbus in 2017. Um, that was a choice. That was a thing that he decided to do. And he's talked about it a little bit on, like, Instagram, but he... Essentially, decided like I wanted to. I decided to live the rest of my life in Columbus. Like that was a constant. Uh, that was a conscious choice. He wanted to emphasize Columbus culture. He wanted to talk because he'll write stuff about Columbus, um, but he wanted to emphasize that it's where he felt comfortable. It's where he felt happy. So he's just like, I have chosen to live the rest of my life in Columbus. If he lived in New York, hmm. like Tana Hesse Coates. I'm sure he'd have other opportunities if he lived in L.A. or Berkeley or Chicago even, which is not that far from Columbus. I'm sure it would be another story, but he doesn't compromise his happiness for what he is clearly gifted enough and talented enough and works hard enough to
0: achieve. That's amazing. I love that. And and hearing that now, you know, speaking of rabbit holes earlier, I am... I, I'm going to have to find out if uh, Hanifo Durakib has any connection to Eric Nally, who is the uh, lead singer of Foxy Shazam, who is the um, the only other person I've ever encountered who like shows staying in Columbus, Ohio and making that their scene shows that over maybe a better career move. So now I, I have to know this.
1: I mean, I I wonder if <laughs> maybe there's something to Columbus. Who's to say? Um, it's better I
0: could than certainly. T-
1: oh dear! Oh dear! Um, but yeah, like I more than anything, I was more interested in just. Uh, I, I'm going to wrap this up so that we can move on because we did have a long douchebag buffer. Um but yeah, I wanted to take this topic to just like highlight this dude because he doesn't get enough attention. Yes, he's actively publishing books um in my little writer sphere online. Um he's very very well known. He's very well known among poets. He's moderately well known among like people writing on the subject of race. Um again, not as much as like Coates or Ewing or Cornel West, um but he's known. Yeah. Um, but other than going to like my, my little indie bookstore here in Asheville, North Carolina and seeing, you know, one of his books up on the new culture reads, um, or the booksellers, um, choices, because like all of his, whoever is the bookseller at Malaprops in Asheville, North Carolina, who keeps putting Hanif Abdurraqib's books on their chosen sections, like, I love you, please keep doing it. Um, you are great. Uh, but yeah, other than that kind of thing, he's not getting that same kind of mainstream recognition. And I want him to, even if you don't want to read his poetry, read his culture books, even if you don't want to read his culture books, read his music criticism. Like I guarantee you, he has written about so many things, so many varying genres and so many different artists I can probably, if you give me, you know, 10 or 20 music acts you love, I can probably find a couple of Hanif Abdurrakeep essays about them. So, I wanted to highlight him. Andy, if you want to borrow any of his books, feel free. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Are you a Tribe Called Quest fan?
0: Uh, I'm not a super fan, but I very much, uh, I know who a tribe, a tribe Called Quest are, and I very much appreciate them and their pivotal, um, contributions to modern music.
1: All right. I'm here for it. So, uh, I just wanted to emphasize that I'll throw some links. Uh, I'll throw a link to his website where he has like just a list of his publications and interviews on it. If any of this sounds even vaguely interesting to you, please check him out. I want him to get more attention. If nothing else, follow him on Instagram, where again, he probably spends more time posting like short videos of him like kicking a soccer ball around with his dog and showing off his incredible collection of vintage t-shirt. Yo, he collects vintage concert t-shirts and, and he will post up like Instagram photos of him wearing them. Like he spends more time promoting that than any of his work. And I want to see his work get some more attention. I do so, too now. Anifa Durkee, yeah. That's my love. Please check him out. Andy, you want to get into our rather big hate topic?
0: Yeah, very, very big hate, and also, um, you know, I'll I'll start up front by saying this is kind of a mixed bag hate. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Olympics, and uh, I I chose this for one to be topical for once because uh, I believe at time of recording the Olympics will have just freshly been kicked off and and will be in the middle of the 2020 slash 2021 Tokyo Olympics. Um, so for once, we're going to be topical. And I want to start by just asking, what is your earliest memory of the Olympics? Because I'm really curious to know if it's kind of the same as mine. Um, You know, the Olympics were...
1: <sighs> My parents watched the Olympics, like... Not, not like, obsessively, but when the Olympics were happening, they were like, oh, the Olympics are on. Let's, you know, turn on the channel and see whatever's happening right now. Um, I think my sister was into gymnastics um, to a certain degree. I know she did gymnastics as a, as a very young child. Um, so I remember watching, like, gymnastics with her. I remember during the Winter Olympics watching figure skating. Um I think occasionally some other sports here and there, I, I'm not going to lie. My parents are Colombian and something that the Olympics tends to bring out amongst immigrant families is, oh yeah, no, I got to watch my, my home country and my, um, adopted country and uh, see how they do. We'll
0: talk on that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So like, I remember my parents watching like track and field events and being like, yeah, yeah. I hope the U.S. does well. Or watching some other event and being like, oh, colombia has got somebody in this. Um, we're watching it. Like, it's, it was never a huge thing, but I remember that. I also really remember there was one year with the Olympics. I think it was maybe 90. It was either 96 or 2000. I don't remember which, but um, Cartoon Network did this, like, special on the Olympics where it was this like one-off cartoon with this little like olymp this little character doing various Olympic uh, events to earn Olympic rings. He had to do five events and earn the different Olympic rings. And it was all about sportsmanship and the true spirit of the Olympics. Okay, was and it, it was, was it,
0: uh, was it like a little platypus?
1: I don't remember. He was a plat. I do remember him being kind of bluish. Um, I don't remember it well enough. I really, really don't. But it was some like weird Olympic special, and I've never been able to find it since. I've tried to Google around for it, and I've never located it. I don't remember what it was called, but I like it stands out in my head as just a spirit of the Olympics, five Olympic rings. That's weird. Okay, I'll watch this.
0: Fair enough. Okay, and thank you for that answer. I, I was curious. I have a distinct memory of the Sydney Summer Olympics, which were in 2000. And the reason I do is there was this, there were these little cartoon mascot characters and like one of them was a platypus and the other one was like a blue footed gecko or something. And there were these three little Australian animals who were the, the, the kid mascots marketed to every elementary schooler in Colorado, if not elsewhere. Um, and so I was just a uh, very curious, if, if that had reached its way into your head as well, but okay. So getting into it, um, I feel like the Olympics are one of the biggest, like, like it's like a touchstone concept to the point where I truly wonder if anyone listening could even be unfamiliar with them. Um, but you know, just in case we're talking about, an international month-long sporting competition uh you know that was inspired by the ancient grecian games which took place in you know a a town called or, or it was for olympus or something that's why they're called the olympics um but you know it is a A event that happens every two years and they swap between summer games and winter games. And most of the non third world sends athletes to compete in these events and and win fame and glory for their respective countries. That is Mm -hmm. what the Olympics is. And I think that's everybody knows that's what the Olympics is. Uh, but what people might be less aware of is that the Olympics is run by a governing commission committee, which is known as the IOC, the international Olympics, either commissioner committee. I didn't look it up committee. Okay. Committee. There you go. The international Olympics committee who oversee basically every single aspect of the games and the event. And that goes from being the people who do the selection process For all of the different cities that make bids to have their city be where the next Olympics are held, or technically the Olympics three Olympics from now are held um, Uh to fine tuning rules and eligibility for both events and athletes alike. And so, you know, I, I just want to get this out. I won't lie. There are things I really like about the Olympics, you know, kind of in the same way uh, as your parents in, in my household, it was like, Oh, the Olympics are on this month. Let's watch this. My mom was real big into gymnastics and both my parents uh, enjoyed figure skating, Uh, you know, being a big hockey family. Hockey is, is super important for the Olympics. One of the greatest sporting moments in history arguably was when the uh, the Miracle on Ice and the uh, nineteen eighty six U S team beat the Soviet Union for gold. Um, you know the the Olympics are cool, and I, I like being able to just turn on NBC or whatever it is and see all these sports that otherwise would be relegated to ESPN three, taking a national spotlight and just like sit there and be like, you know what? I'm going to watch the women's biking triathlon. Cause why not? This is cool. Go, go people. I
1: have words to say about that, but continue.
0: (laughs) Um, I, I, you know, I just pulled one out of a hat, but just like, you know, there, there are events that everybody likes snowboarding, archery, fencing, swimming, diving, ice skating, what have you. Uh, and, and, you know, I know you've spoken yourself about competitive weightlifting and the Olympics mm-hmm. being one of the, uh, one, one of the premier tournaments for that. Um, you know, beyond that, the opening ceremonies, especially in the past. 15 years or so have have grown every year it's it's a country trying to outdo uh, the country that came before it and and have these these grandiose three hour long performance events that you know blow any Super Bowl halftime show out of the water and just are these amazing technological achievement uh, entertainment pieces full of things that go on to become memes like the time in Sochi (laughs) when uh, a ring wouldn't open and, and Putin uh, absolutely had the engineer uh, responsible killed the next day. You know, remember that fun meme, (laughs) Uh. (laughs) but in so much as there are things that I like, there are also there, there is so much to hate. Um, And the core theme of, of my hate, uh, you know, really boils down to, the financial excess of the olympics but there are some other things in there um so you know just to break it down I i don't think a lot of people realize this i didn't quite and i had a vague idea uh about what i'm about to talk about but prospective cities need to start a bidding process with the ioc 11 years in advance 11 years and then like They kind of just submit their names and then wait for two years, at which time it becomes this competition to sell your city, but also you're literally basically paying to stay in the race. So, you know, a city puts it a bid nine years before it wants to host the Olympics. So, you know, in, in 2011, Tokyo was bidding to uh, get the 2020 Summer Games. And that bid includes a $150,000 entrance fee. And the longer you stay in the prospect process, which still takes years and years and years and years, the more money you're basically um, obligated to spend. And if your city is not chosen, you don't get your money back. So, you know, I, I found this out doing research. Um, probably one of the most egregious, egregious examples for, for 2016, Chicago had made a failed bid for the 2016 Summer Games. And when it was all said and done, they were like, you know, they were one of the finalists or, or whatever before losing out to Rio de Janeiro. They had poured in a hundred million dollars into their proposal. They had Barack Obama, like as a spokesperson petitioning and, and raising money for Chicago to get, uh, to get games. And that alone, I want to sit here and think about that. That alone is such a jaw dropping. Holy shit. Financial waste to me. Hundreds and hundreds and thousands of dollars, millions of dollars from every city that wants to do this on the globe. And where does the money go? <laughs> <laughs> and i don't have an answer i didn't look that that far into it yeah
1: I, I can i can i can give you a few ideas about where it goes. <laughs>
0: well yeah sure i've got some ideas certainly <laughs> mm. straight into some old rich white european most likely, people's uh pockets
1: you ever um i i, I don't want to interrupt you but um have you ever read a book called brazil's dance with the devil
0: is it about the rio olympics
1: It's about um, the Rio Olympics and the Rio World Cup. Okay. Um, So in 2016, um, a writer named Dave uh, Zirin—I'll link to this in the show notes, actually—but Dave Zirin, who's the sports reporter for The Nation, The Nation being the premier left-leaning publication in the United States, um, Dave Zirin is their sports writer, and he came out with a book called Brazil's Dance with the Devil, the World Cup, the Olympics, and the Fight for Democracy. And it is all about how these sporting events, including the Olympics, basically destroyed Rio. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like how the construction of the Olympic villages and the World Cup stadiums displaced thousands upon thousands of very poor people out of their neighborhoods. How they just, how the, the complete fuckery that happened with like... Screwing over the building contractors to the point where there are dead people buried in the foundations of some of those buildings because they were just like, well, they're dead. They're in there. We can't get them out and we can't hold up the actual construction. And as far as the money that went towards all of that, a lot of that money was taken from social programs in Rio Paid over to the IOC for quote-unquote operating costs, but don't ever look too deeply into the salaries of IOC administrators if you don't want to completely just... The IOC is on par with FIFA in terms of just sheer graft.
0: Sure, and corruption and and tomfuckery, absolutely. I, uh, I didn't put this in the notes, so I know you probably don't have an answer to this, but... Uh, A fun fact, Montreal hosted the 1976 Games. Do you want to guess when uh, Montreal stopped being in debt for the 1976 World Games?
1: I'm going to... Okay, I'm going to say 2014.
0: You're close. And, And you know what? I will say that is actually an overestimate, but 2006, 30 years... Thirty years, the city of Montreal owed money at the end of all this for a month of sporting event. Which one might argue this is the most prestigious sporting event in the world. There are plenty who would argue it's not. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, this is a a a cultural sporting event, and cities just bend over backwards. Paying for the privilege to do this and there aren't that many tangible benefits and and any tangible benefits you you can say are probably going to be counteracted by other things, you know, you get to my other point. Uh hosting the Olympics usually means you're going to re, uh, renovate the entire city. That's part of the other reason why, you know, you have to start a decade in advance is it takes years and years and years to make sure that the roads are right and the fast transit systems work in the way you want. And they have done a study and 100% of cities that have hosted the Olympics have gone over budget for their proposals on, on renovations, sometimes up to 300%. And that money's got to come from somewhere.
1: (laughs) And it's normally coming from either re like reconvening where your money to other programs and initiatives and operations are going, most often to the poor and marginalized who are the least able to do anything about it, or it's just borrowed for.
0: Yeah.
1: And you're just paying off that debt for however much time.
0: Yeah, 30 years or so, you know. Um, and, and somebody might say, well, well, the city gets something out of it. They get, they get roads and they get fast transit and they get the entire city renovated. And yes, but... Eh after the games are over more often than not, especially if it's not like, like one of the 10 most premier cities on earth, like, like Tokyo will probably be fine, but Mm -hmm. Sochi, Rio, a lot of the Olympic facilities that cost millions of dollars to, to build now just sit there you know the the most infamous one is the Rio the Rio Olympic pool facilities which people went to like like not even that long like I, I think it was like 18 months after the Olympics had ended and just... Nobody had done anything because what are you going to do with a series of Olympic swimming pools? So they were just sitting there being reclaimed to nature, and the water was green, and and it's just this terrible giant waste. And
1: and they bulldozed so many poor neighborhoods exactly. to put them up there. Yeah.
0: So just a a a a supervillain level of waste resources and lack of empathy for the most downtrodden members of the community. Like you could have a goddamn captain planet episode of somebody who wants to bulldoze a series (laughs) of small towns in order to build a giant swimming pool. Like that is a fucking captain planet plot. I, I
1: feel like that, you know, actually building a new, like, stadium, I feel like that was the plot. Like, bulldozing a bunch of slums to build up a stadium is the plot of at least a few 90s cartoons.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that that's the, the bulk of it. And I, I think that would be enough. But there are just a few other points I want to talk on. You know, uh, given that it's an international event, the Olympics can, as you'd expect, never really steer clear of drama and political pressure. Um, You know, the 1936 Olympics were famously held in Nazi Germany. And Mm. really just the main thing to highlight there is that meant that a lot of uh, the, the IOC of that day sat there and went, yes, we are okay working with Nazis pre-World War II Nazis I I think pre-invasion of Poland Nazis, but still Nazis. You know,
1: you know Jesse Owens never got his picture with Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> He's supposed to be taking a photo with every Olympic champion, and Hitler never took a photo with Jesse Owens.
0: And they just let it happen, because, no, I guess it was Hitler. Um, you know, to, to there there are so many examples I could list. There was, uh, I want to say, the nineteen eighty six Olympics had a straight up terrorist attack, which I just straight up don't have any information on. But the the Olympics have been attacked at least once. Um, and and to bring it into modern days, the twenty eighteen Sochi Olympics, which was the most recent Winter Games, you know, that took place in Russia, and there was just a overwhelming amount of, of Russian homophobic policy that was like spread and made requirements for the athletes to be there. It was basically like this soft worded thing of like, if you're gay, you can play in our games, but you better not like, you better stay in the closet the entire time. Just bullshit like that. Um, and the, the the my final point really the the thing that i was sitting here kind of realizing as these games came up i mentioned the olympics being kind of a big thing we focused on in elementary school in my schools and part of the thing that you would always see is there would be like this this chart this poster uh where you could keep track of how many Uh, gold medals America one versus Canada versus England versus Australia versus Japan. Let's let's track who got the most gold medals, USA, USA. And this is a minor thing, but I, I look at it now and, and that comes across to me as so jingoistic Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and such a, insidious not maybe not maybe insidious is the wrong word but such a um a subtle way of reinforcing country based biases into into people, both young and old, you know, you mentioned your parents, um, you know, paying a little bit extra attention to the Colombian athletes and, and there's nothing wrong with them doing that. I, I completely understand it. Um, but it's just at the point where it it starts to become more about the country than the individual athlete, you know, that starts to, be weird to me
1: so there's a you're right there is definitely a jingoism that a lot of people bring to the olympics and okay um andy you you follow hockey and you have at least marginally followed other let's just say big four sports Mm -hmm. in the u.s right yep And I'm sure you've rooted for particular teams, probably ones that you had either a family or a location-based connection to. Yes.
0: Go Bolts. Okay.
1: (laughs) And and that's great. Okay. Um, I say that's great. Like, I didn't rail about it being stupid on a previous episode. But, like, setting that aside for a moment. Let's pretend I never said any of that. Um, It's a thing where... If your team, the team you like, for whatever reason you've decided to like them, um, if they lose, do you stop liking them? Do you pull the Homer Simpson where he, like, hates the isotopes, the baseball team, um, because they suck, the Springfield isotopes, and then he finds out that they're on a hot streak and they're, like, doing super well, and so he, like, leaves Moe's and comes back head-to-toe in isotopes gear and is like, woohoo, isotopes!
0: No, I am not a bandwagon fan, for sure.
1: Okay, there you go. Now, something that I have noticed with the Olympics, um, and this is also true of the um, World Cup, I will say that as well, uh, in the U.S., Americans hate sports that we suck at.
0: Yes, indeed.
1: And I will say this up front as a—you mentioned this. I am a fan of weightlifting. Weightlifting is the proper name of the sport is weightlifting, but it is colloquially known throughout most of the a lot of the English speaking world, not as weightlifting, but as Olympic weightlifting, Mm. because it is the weightlifting sport that is contested in the Olympics. There are other weightlifting sports. There's powerlifting, there's strengthlifting, there's armlifting, there's there are there's one ton challenge. There's CrossFit. There are other sports that involve the lifting of weight, but only weightlifting is recognized as that. Weightlifting being the sport of um, testing out based on three attempts: the snatch and the clean and jerk.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's my favorite sport. It is the sport I practice. It is my. It is the sp- the only sport I follow with like real regularity and Americans hate weightlifting because we suck at it because the best we've been able to do in the last 20 years has been two bronze medals one in 2000 and one in 2016 and they were both won by women men's weightlifting we are horrible we haven't even gotten close. Women's weightlifting, we do okay. We don't beat China. We don't beat Russia. We don't beat a lot of people. We don't beat Thailand. Um, and so Americans don't care about it. We care about track and field. We care about gymnastics. We care about swimming. We care about the sports we win at. And the other sports we like to sh- like shove under the rug. That's jingoism. That is a gross nationalism where you only want to emphasize the spots that make you feel good. Because you, Andy, are not a fair-weather fan. I'm not a fair-weather weightlifting fan. I have the weightlifting teams that I like and support, the lifters I like and support. And when I watch, I have watched all the weightlifting sessions that I can find on YouTube since... I think I've watched all the weightlifting sessions for... Um, 2000, uh, 2004, 2008 and 2016. And I've watched highlights for, um, 1996 and, um, 92 because I I don't think I can find full sessions on there, but like I've watched the Olympics for weightlifting and I have watched America lose over and over and (laughs) and over and over and over and over again, because we're not good at this sport. But I'm still going to, you know, we're sending a full team this year. I don't know if I'm going to watch it. Um, I, too, hate the IOC. I think they're idiots but and monsters and corrupt. But uh, if we're going to talk about nationalism, I don't have a better example of it when it comes to the U.S. than the fact that we don't care about the sports we suck at. And most people only really watch the Olympic sports, most people in the U.S., only watch the Olympic sports that they are good at, that their country is good at, because it's not about the sport. For all the marketing and talk about sportsmanship and true games and, and, and amateurism and, and the beauty of all of this, people don't care don't want to learn the rules. I, I don't know how snowboarding is judged, Andrew. And I don't think I'm ever going to learn.
0: I was about to say, are we talking downhill or half pipe?
1: <laughs> Nerd. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how it works. I, I don't know the rules of it. And I don't think I'm going to. I barely understand how gymnastics works. And I have sat through multiple gymnastics sessions of the Olympics because my sister liked it. The harm of the Olympics. I think the thing I want to say is none of you should feel bad about watching the Olympics if you truly care about the sport. Sure. Or if you truly like, or if you know what, it's fun sometimes. You know, maybe you see a sport you never heard of before. Uh, you know, maybe you've never seen shooting or dressage or judo. You know, like maybe maybe some of these things might be kind of interesting to see um but approaching it with an idea of jingoism like it's okay to have national pride my parents watched colombia win and lose colombia is great at weightlifting actually um but my parents have watched have watched colombia win and lose they've watched the us win and lose they don't get invested but the olympics was never their thing so to speak my dad watches soccer every week that it's on because he loves soccer. He watches baseball and basketball when it's in season because he likes those sports.
0: Uh, And that's fine. Yeah. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and thank you for providing that other context. I, I guess my final word is no matter where you land on the jingoism thing and the fair weatherness of it all, it is indisputable (laughs) that the Olympics are a, lumbering, wasteful, pound for pound, not worth what they actually cost to put on event that we just kind of go, yeah, but it's the world stage. And I'll sit down and, and enjoy it when it's, it's kind of the same thing as uh, NCAA football, honestly. Um, no matter what you think of the actual product, the money that goes into it, and more importantly, who gets the money that go into it, um, is something that you should know and be upset about. So, mm-hmm. thank the, you.
1: Absolutely, the IOC is a cabal. Um, their notions of a lot of a lot of conceits, um, a lot of their rulemaking doesn't make any sense. You know, we, you can mention Shikari Richardson being banned for testing positive. For weed, um, you know, there a lot of a lot of smoke got put up about Laurel Hubbard, um, the New Zealand weightlifter who is a trans woman um, who's competing, and she has gotten so much smoke for that. And I'm going to be really honest with you: the IOC doesn't know what the fuck they're doing when it comes to testosterone levels for athletes. But there is yeah. absolutely a drug problem regarding. Olympic sports, and it's not just steroids, it's also speed and methamphetamine. But, you know, a lot of people aren't ready to have that conversation. It's... I'm going to watch weightlifting in the Olympics. If Stephanie wants to watch um, certain sports, uh, I know she definitely has voiced... um, her own degree of impressedness with um, a lot of the gymnastics teams in the past. And I I don't know if she follows any of the sports, but I'll watch them with her if she wants. Um, But it is important to, even if we are going to, to one degree or another participate in these things to still constantly criticize them and where possible push for adjustments to be made if you live in a city that is pushing for the olympics you know los angeles is going to be the host city in i think eight years if you live in los angeles if you live in los angeles please go to your council meetings go to the city meetings and try and not make the city of los angeles destroy itself for its olympics it's going to be real cool to have the olympics there And Los Angeles does not need to destroy itself when it is already on fire and in danger of earthquakes and climate change is getting ready to flood it. Like, fire, earth, and water are already coming for this bitch. Does wind need to in order for anyone to take it seriously? Like, how many of the elements are against you? Don't let them spend all their money on the fucking Olympics.
0: Hear, hear. Amen. And with that, uh, you know, just to keep us from running too, too terribly long, dear boy, would you like to get into the question?
1: Yes. Uh, You did the format, so I'll go ahead and do the reading um, on this one. This is coming from relationships.txt. Link in the show notes. I'm a... 30-year-old female, my ex is a 30-year-old male, and our son is in elementary school. We officially divorced two years ago. We generally have an amicable relationship and co-parent well. Despite that, due to the divorce and COVID-19, our son's anxiety was put into overdrive. Yo, I get it. Um, He was having a ton of behavioral issues and meltdowns. Fortunately, we were able to get a referral for him to see a social worker slash counselor. It's been six months and he's made significant progress. He's like a different kid. He loves the counselor and she's been a great asset to have during this time. Up until recently, we plan to have him continue working with her to work other goals that he has. The issue I'm having is that my ex recently stated that he is seriously interested in the counselor. While I tend to handle most of the communication with her, he does see her from time to time. He would like to ask her out. My worries. If he asks her out, She will have to stop working with our son due to it being inappropriate or a conflict of interest. I have no idea if she is interested in him, since she often sees us separately, or her relationship status. She's been very professional, so I'm not overly concerned she would pursue a relationship with a client's parent. I would love to ask her what would happen, but I worry about crossing a boundary. I do not want to lose her as a service because A it's tough to find a counselor and B It's as if my ex is trying to take away our son's special person. He's got such a great rapport with her, and I don't want that ruined for him because of my husband's selfishness. I've told my ex my feelings, but he's brushed them off. I explained that she likely wouldn't uh, date him anyway due to her agency's rules, but he doesn't care. I expressed that I and our son would be so upset if he had to stop seeing her, and my ex said he would look into other agencies. His current behavior is making our once really great co-parenting relationship much more stressful for me because I worry he'll screw things up for a kid. I feel like I have no idea what the hell is going on in his head for him to think that this is a wise idea. My questions. How should I handle this with my ex? And should I communicate anything to the counselor? What would happen if my ex goes ahead with it? Oof. And we need... A name for this one, Andy.
0: We do indeed. Um, any pop culture psychiatrists coming to mind?
1: Hmm. I've, so the one thing that I think of is um, you've seen you uh, you've seen um Netf- the Netflix show Sex Education, right?
0: I have.
1: Okay. Um. So I'm thinking this looks very much like um a setup in sex education. It's not a one-to-one, but you know, if for those of you who don't know, sex education is a great Netflix series starring Jillian Anderson and Asa Butterfield. Yeah. And in that one, he, Asa Butterfield is the son, Jillian Anderson and his mother, his mother is a sex therapist and they are divorced because her husband or she is divorced from her husband. Um, her son's dad, because he, um, who was also a sex therapist, wouldn't stop fucking his clients. So does that sound like a workable one or? Uh, uh,
0: absolutely. I've actually, uh, I'm pulling up the sex ed cast list to yeah. try and so, make this um, as, close as comparable we can here.
1: Sure. So the, our asker, I think is Jean, yep. Jillian Anderson's character, yep. Dr. Jean Milburn, uh, the husband or the ex, I guess, is, uh, Remy and, uh, played by James Purefoy. Uh, and the child is Otis, Otis Milburn. And then I'm trying to think who the counselor would be. <laughs>
0: by, by this, by this analogy, then the counselor would be Jakob. But
1: Okay. Okay, you know, you know what I like the idea of uh, Remy and Yaka, you know, touching peanuts, So it works for me. All right. Masturbating is normal and healthy, and I am so proud that you are at this stage of your pubescent development. Okay. However, there is a time and a place for such a private, mom, activity. Uh, I read would you like to start
0: yeah I'll I'll absolutely go ahead and you know this this gene has a good head on their shoulders in the sense of just pointing out a lot of stuff that would have been the uh, immediate things I would have pointed out you know no, um, no counselor or therapist with any level of professionalism would uh, get into a relationship with a client or a client's father in this case. Um, And it seems like the real big problem here is Remy just doesn't actually care, and that's so heartbreaking to find out that like he's so willing to put his son's (laughs) well-being behind... his own boner. Yes, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> and just even this idea of like, well, I'm going to shoot my shot. And it, it not without even knowing if she's single, without even knowing if she's interested, just being like, "No, I'm interested. Fuck it. I'm clearly a white man." <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm glad you recognize your own.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I apologize for them enough.
1: Mm.
0: I think maybe the best way to to handle this with the X, you've tried to appeal his humanity and it's been found lacking. Maybe appeal to try to appeal to his pride and really reinforce, like, no, listen, there there is no way this goes well. All you're going to do is make a fool of yourself. You're going to lose the respect of this woman who you so who you're so interested in. You're really going to mess up your kid. You're going to lose what little respect I had for you. And I mean, maybe that's the avenue to take because like explain best case scenario. What you start dating this woman and our son has to, go through the turmoil of finding another counselor with no guarantee that they are as good. And then there's this awkward, um, boundary between son and girlfriend, dad's girlfriend slash former counselor of like, Oh, Hey, remember how you were the only person who like really helped me through that time. And now you're in this pseudo parental figure. And so I can't really address you like a parent. And I also can't really treat you like a counselor anymore. Remember when we could actually like talk to the second question. I think you do get the counselor involved. I think, I think you have one last conversation with Remy and, and appeal to his pride or just double down and try to really appeal that you don't think this is a good idea at all. And if he is still unreceptive at that point, you go, okay, hey, listen, listen, Jacob. Um, I think you're an amazing uh, professional at what you do. You're really helping my son, and my ex-husband is going to make himself a fool in front of you, and I would like to figure out what options we could pursue to make sure that my child, the person whose priorities should be most important in this situation, um, continues to get the care from you. ...that he deserves. And that's what I got.
1: I think that's a great... I think that's great, Andy. Honestly. Gene. Um, Dr. Milburn. I... I think you should take Andy's advice. I think definitely bringing the counselor in... Um, ...and mentioning it to her... ...mentioning it to Jacob, ...and just kind of being like, Hey... This is what my husband has communicated to me. I, I I do not want to lose you as a counselor to my son. Do you have any advice about this? Um, counselors are... Counselors. Um, the counselors that I have known, um, not the ones I've seen, the ones who are friends of mine, um, have, at least in an academic sense been given some instruction on what the problems are with something like dating a client's or dating a client's parent um or dating a family member of a client and agencies do have their own very strict rules about this so getting her advice would be helpful i I think you're probably seeming to be a little worried that maybe by even asking the question, you might immediately make it so that the um, counseling relationship is no longer appropriate and that um, Jakob will just immediately cut it off. If you are worried about that, um, there is actually nothing wrong with you without identification calling the agency itself and inquiring what would happen in this case Um, agencies are very familiar with confidentiality so um, you would need to call from a phone number that they don't have on file but um calling them and basically stating listen i do not want to divulge my um identity however this is my situation um at the end of the day mike cares about my son um would speaking to your employee my son's counselor about this immediately result in a problem um it, there's nothing wrong with them anonymously asking that or even um having someone do it on your behalf that is acceptable that aside I think you should prepare for the worst case scenario yeah your ex has um s- has shown that despite being, um, prior to this point, a generally good co-parent um, and someone you have in moderately amicable relationship with, your ex has shown you that, um, at least where it comes to this particular situation, he is uh, more self-serving than he is a good parent. And you should be prepared... To safeguard your child in the event that he does something selfish and stupid. Now, um, if he does fuck this up for your child, I think that's something to hold over his head. Honestly. It should be his responsibility to find a follow-up counselor. I think you deserve to have your kid know that it was him who did this and what he did. I think that is valid. Um, You don't actually state um, Otis's name in here. You say that he's, or I'm sorry, you don't state his age, but you say that he's in elementary school. Um, Andy's right. Like The best case scenario of this is that Otis's dad's girlfriend is his former counselor. The fact that Remy is even entertaining that possibility shows he doesn't give a fuck about Otis.
0: Yeah, that's real heartbreaking.
1: It's that's incredibly heartbreaking. Literally the best case scenario for Remy is a highly is a potentially uncomfortable and highly inappropriate situation for Otis, even if he changes agencies, even if he changes counselors. It's still highly highly inappropriate so if remy fucks this up i think otis deserves to know i think it's perfect you're perfectly within your rights to tell remy if you fuck this up your son will know that you are the one who fucked it up i think you are perfectly within your rights to as andy said communicate that you would lose respect for him I think he needs to know what the potential consequences of his actions are because he is 100% thinking with his goddamn dick. And maybe it's just me, but I'm of the opinion that if you have a child and you put the needs of your dick above your child, you don't deserve to have either. So prepare for the worst-case scenario. You may need to find a new counselor for your child if your, if your ex-husband continues to be a gigantic douche. And make sure that your, hus- your ex-husband is aware of the consequences of his actions before he commits them. Not as threats, but as statements of action. And if he's too much of a little bitch to accept that, meet out those consequences. You might lose your counselor. Your son might suffer. Prepare for that now. I don't like taking that purview, believe it or not. I may be a pessimist, but I'm not happy about it. But prepare for that now. And honestly, just take care of Otis, however you need to.
0: Yeah, harsh but fair. And I think, uh, you know, that certainly lets Jean. Highlight her priorities and gives, I think, a, a, the best action plan that can happen. I mean, honestly, this is kind of a, you know, really unfortunate situation. Anyway, but. You know, we take all questions, whether they're unfortunate situations or not so unfortunate situations, and we try to give them the same level of care and respect. I think we've done that here. If you, dear listener, have a relationship question or somebody you know has a relationship question and you want to hear us talk it through and, you know, try to give uh, differing perspectives and our most well-meaning advice, you can send those questions into Podcast at gmail.com, where we promise we'll read them.
1: That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Um, Counseling is great. I love it. Um, You can also rate and review us on all of those. And you can follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. Follow us there to keep up with new episodes, to get updates or the occasional teaser of uh, another episode that's coming up, or just to see us like tweet about random shit that comes up that's related to stuff we've talked about in the past. Andy already congratulated the Tampa Bay Lightning on their win uh, as of the recording of this episode. Who's to say what we might come up with in between?
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, You can follow me, Andy Bowell, at JovoCop2113 on Twitter. Uh, And you can also follow my other podcast, Cult Fiction, where I watch cult movies with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson. Uh, One of those was uh, Super Troopers, which was written by Jay Trondesacar, who I I name-dropped earlier in the show. And so we always have a really good time with that. That's Cult Fiction, and you can find it the same place you can find uh, Love, Hate, Relationship
1: that's right uh you can follow me on twitter and instagram and i guess tiktok at a underscore x underscore r u i z thanks for listening y'all we appreciate it as ever please tell your enemies